Father, the things we just sang are true. We are uh, tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. And we need you. We need you to do things that only uh, you can do for us. We need you to save us and help us and keep us and love us. And I pray that you would do all of those kind and redemptive things through your word this morning to all of your people. God, again, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches this morning. And God, I pray that you would um, work in our hearts what's pleasing to you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. We offer them to you uh, like we offer you this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 3. And this morning we look at the last of Christ's letters to seven first century churches in Asia Minor. Here Jesus addresses the church in Laodicea, beginning in verse 14, Revelation chapter 3. In today's text we'll see the problem of lukewarmness, the cause of lukewarmness, the solution to lukewarmness, and the promise to those who repent of it. So the promise, the cause, sorry, the problem, the cause, the solution, and the promise. But before we hear any of that, in verse 14, we read an introduction of sorts as Christ begins his address to the church in Laodicea. He first of all draws attention to who he is. So look at this introduction with me now. Verse 14, Christ addresses the lukewarm church. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Christ names himself up front in these ways so that his words to the Laodicean church will fall with more weight. Christ first introduced himself as the Amen. Now, Amen is a Hebrew word that is often used to confirm or verify a saying or or to conclude a prayer with a word of confirmation and agreement. While Christ was teaching on earth, uh, sometimes he would add gravity to what he was about to say by introducing his saying with, Amen, amen, or in our English Bibles, often translated, truly, truly, I say to you. So Christ calls himself the amen to show that he will surely confirm as true all of the words that he's about to speak to the church. All of them will prove true. So his promises can be relied on. His warnings should be feared. His advice should be heeded. His perspective should be trusted because all of his words will be confirmed. They will all be yes and amen. The only other place in the Bible where amen is used as a personal name, like it is here, is in Isaiah 65, 16, where the Lord is called the God of amen or the God of truth. Isaiah 65, 16 says, He who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, the God of amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, the God of amen. When will this happen? Well, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So there in Isaiah 65, the Lord calls himself the God of amen, or the God of truth, and then speaks about he certainly, truly, will create a new heavens and a new earth where former troubles will be forgotten. And here too in Revelation 3, Christ calls himself the amen, and will soon speak of the new creation, which he has already begun. The next name Christ takes for himself in the introduction is the faithful and true witness. See it there in verse 14. 
And this continues the same idea as the title, the Amen. In fact, the Hebrew word Amen, when it's translated, and not just carried over as Amen, when it's translated, it's often translated by the word true, or faithful, or trustworthy. So Jesus is expanding on on this same idea of being the Amen. Now this same pair of words comes up again at the end of the book of Revelation, talking about the words of Christ, that they are true and trustworthy. In Revelation 21 and 22, and he brings this up as he's describing the coming new creation, the new heavens and, and the new earth. So Jesus is the true and faithful witness in that he is the Lord whose words are always worthy of trust. They will always be confirmed as the truth. So Jesus is about to lay charges against the church in Laodicea. And he prosecutes them as a true witness. And he's about to tell them that his perspective on how they're doing is very different from their perspective on how they are doing. His words are the true ones. Jesus is about to give this church counsel for how they should respond. And this counsel is as good as gold. Amen and amen. The final appellation Christ takes upon himself to help prepare the Laodiceans to hear the words he's about to speak is the beginning of God's creation. Now Jesus is the beginning of God's creation in that he has inaugurated, begun the new creation in his resurrection. So the age to come has already begun. Uh, The creation of the new heavens and the new earth is already underway. It dawned when Jesus rose from the dead in a glorified body of the new creation. When Christ's physical human nature was glorified at his resurrection and it was transformed and, and put on immortality, at that moment, God broke ground on the new creation. He is the one who is the beginning of the new creation. And as such, he is given pride of place in the new heavens and the new earth. He is preeminent. He is sovereign over the new creation, in addition to being the initiator of it. Another phrase that's, that's equivalent to this idea of Jesus being the beginning of the new creation is to say he is the firstborn from the dead. Uh, he is the, the firstborn not only in in the sense of temporal priority, the first to be born from the dead, but also the firstborn in the sense of authority and inheritance, the ruler of the coming age to come and the new heavens and the new earth. Further support for this understanding is in the introduction of Revelation, the whole book in chapter 1, there... Jesus is also called the faithful witness. And then immediately after that, he's called the firstborn from the dead. Similarly, Colossians chapter 1 contains a very close parallel to this phrase where Jesus is also called the beginning. And then that's explained as the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the church in Laodicea, has become lukewarm and self-satisfied with with their worldly riches. We'll soon see that. And Jesus addresses them out of the gate as one who is the beginning of God's creation to encourage them to stop resting in their earthly comforts and instead live as faithful witnesses who belong to the new creation that is coming. If anyone is in Christ, he's already a part of the new creation by virtue of his union with Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come, and so the Laodicean Christians need to repent of their worldliness and repent of their spiritual complacency and then overcome the world through faith in Christ because a new creation is coming that will replace it. The amen, the faithful and the true witness, says that it is so. And so it will be so. 
And in fact, the beginning of this new creation has already dawned because Christ is risen. And so Christ calls the lukewarm church to repent in keeping with this reality. Now, first we hear Christ speak to the Laodicean church about the problem of lukewarmness. The problem of lukewarmness. Look at verse 15 and 16 with me now. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the city of Laodicea would be very familiar with this imagery. Uh, There were three cities situated in the same valley in Asia Minor. And one of them, uh, Hierapolis, was well known for its invigorating hot springs. Another nearby city, Colossae, was well known for its uh, refreshing, cool water that it had access to. But Laodicea, by contrast, had a notoriously inferior water supply. Laodicea was situated somewhat close to a hot springs, but not close enough to avoid having to pipe in the water through an aqueduct. And by the time the water reached the city for use, it was undesirably lukewarm. And may also have picked up impurities and filth along the way, so that it was at best distasteful, and at worst, sickening. So Laodicea would have a vivid picture in their mind hearing Christ's words here. And they would not be flattered by this comparison. What does the imagery of the lukewarm water represent? How is their Christianity comparable to their water supply? Well, being lukewarm, I think, in context, is the opposite of being zealous. When Jesus commands the lukewarm church to repent in verse 19, he commands them in the same breath, be zealous. So the lukewarm church had lost its spiritual fervency, liveliness, passion, earnest and genuine concern for living for Christ, a heart to abound in good works and witness. Obviously, they continued to profess to follow Christ and apparently continued showing up to church on Sundays, but they were characterized largely by spiritual indifference and complacency. Now compare this to Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. Jesus told that church, I know your works. And then he commended them for a lot of good things that they were doing. But they were doing these things while having left the love they had at, at first. Do you remember this? The Ephesian church members had lives full of Christian activity and Christian ministry. They had an obvious concern still of some kind for good works and for good doctrine, but these were becoming hollow works because because they had a waning love for Jesus. By contrast, this church in Laodicea is even further gone in that they too undoubtedly have, have a waning love for Jesus, but also their lives are not full of Christian ministry and activity or an obvious concern for good works and good doctrine, like their Ephesian counterparts. There's no discernible, controlling concern to live as a faithful witness for Jesus in the world. Now, to help you further get a picture of this church's lukewarmness, consider verse 17, where Jesus speaks further about the state of the church, and he describes their perspective as one in which they say... I am in need of nothing. I have all I need. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. I mean, sure, they would probably give you the textbook answer. Uh, If you ask them, do you need Jesus and the salvation and provision that he offers? But someone would be justified to press in on them and challenge their uh, assertion and say something like, "I I know you say that you're a Christian and that you need Jesus, but I've watched the way that you live, and and I just have to ask you, really? It's just just us, really. I mean, really. Do you really think you need Jesus and what he offers? I, I can't really tell. 
and their spiritual lukewarmness was likely making unbelievers watching their lives come to that same conclusion. Well, if that's all Christianity is, then I guess I already have all I need too. If that's what Christianity looks like, do, do I really need Jesus? I mean, does, does this supposed salvation that Christ offers really make a difference in people's lives other than adding a weekly commitment to their calendar? They were complacent. Laodicea was a city seeped in self-satisfied affluence. Uh, when an earthquake destroyed the city, they actually refused imperial support to help build their city back. No, we can handle it ourselves. We're rich. We'll do this. And they did. Uh, apparently, this general city attitude characterized even the synagogue in the city. John MacArthur reports that the Talmud speaks scornfully of the life of ease and laxity lived by the Laodicean Jews. And so the ethos of this city had, had infiltrated the church as well. The Laodicean church members were spiritually at ease and by and large unconcerned about it. They were deceived about it. And they were smugly self-assured. So as I have described the lukewarmness of the Laodiceans, have I also been describing you? This is severe. The severity of this lukewarmness is seen also from the warning Jesus gives. At the end of verse 16, Jesus says, Because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the most concrete meaning of this word is, is to vomit or throw up. Because you're neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out. The spiritual lukewarmness is sickening to Christ. Now, probably the imagery here is, is something more like spewing. You take a sip of water, it's not refreshingly cold or, or soothingly hot, but it's in a nauseating way, lukewarm. And as soon as the brain realizes what's in the mouth, it's just spewed out because the idea of swallowing it just makes you gag. That's not a very pleasant picture, is it? And that's exactly Jesus' point. Now, many commentators argue this is the most severe condemnation that any of the seven churches receive in Revelation 2 and 3, and I agree with them. This picture of being, of being spewed out of the mouth of Christ is, is a picture of disgust. Uh, Leon Morris hits the nail on the head in saying that Christ expresses in the strongest way a vigorous repudiation of the Laodiceans. Lukewarmness is not to be endured. So this means the Laodicean church members should not have any solid assurance of faith while they remain in this lukewarm state because their heart and deeds or lack of deeds are in accord with hearing Christ say, depart from me, get out of my mouth. It's hard to conclude that, that people who persist in this kind of clear obvious, observable, severe lukewarmness such that it characterizes them. It's hard to conclude that these would be genuine believers. Now, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, in actuality, Jesus indicates that he knows many of the people in this church are genuine believers because he says later uh, in this letter that this rebuke is part of his loving discipline, loving discipline to motivate his people to repent of their lukewarmness. And of course, even beyond that, this rebuke is an invitation to all the people in the church, whether regenerate or not, to, to repent and find mercy. So I think it's relatively straightforward. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it's not difficult to understand what being lukewarm signifies in this text, a lack of zeal and spiritual fervor. There's disagreement over what it means to be cold. Uh, clearly, being cold, whatever that means, is being better than lukewarm. 
As Christ indicated, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, because you're lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out. And most commonly, being cold has been interpreted as something like a clear and obvious denial of Jesus. Better to be clearly opposed to Him and, and not profess to make any claim on Him and His salvation than, than to half-heartedly pay lip service to Him. And in that reading, both the lukewarm and the cold are desperately in need of Christ, but at least that cold group might more easily be shown their need for Christ. While that interpretation does teach something that is true, uh, many more modern commentators suggest that cold represents something positive in Jesus' illustration. Right? The hot water of Hierapolis is good. It's invigorating. The cold water in Colossae is good. It's refreshing. You know, so in that view, being cold and hot are largely equivalent. It's having a faith that's marked by vigor and intensity and distinctness from the world, spiritual liveliness. Ultimately, it doesn't matter much which way one leans about what cold illustrates, because the real problem in this passage that it aims at is lukewarmness, which means basically the same thing either way you slice it. You know, all of us need to hear this rebuke of the lukewarm church. Because even if most of us are not in this exact same spot, and I suspect that is the case, all of us are sinfully capable of getting here. Um, All of us should tremble before this rebuke of Jesus. So I don't think, by God's grace that I am lukewarm in the same way that the Laodicean church was. And I believe that's true for, for most of you whom I know here. But I do still feel the pull toward that, the temptation towards this kind of self sufficient complacency in my sinful heart. And I hope you are spiritually self aware enough to see that in your heart too. Don't we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it? Now also, it must be true that all of us have some degree of lukewarmness present in our hearts even now. Uh, I mean, you may not be borderline apostate, lukewarm like Laodicea, but, but you certainly don't love Jesus with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And you shouldn't make peace with that. There is some degree of lukewarmness in your heart, and if you recognize that and you desire to repent of that, that's a good sign. And you need to listen in and consider how these words of Christ apply to you too. So here's an application question for you. Uh, What habits might you have that might not necessarily be sinful in and of itself, but it promotes lukewarmness in your life and heart. What practices are you engaging in regularly that that might be greasing the slide down to spiritual complacency? And what will you do about that? Do what it takes to be zealous. And before we move on, I think it's worth pondering the fact Jesus speaks this condemnation to the whole church. I mean, this lukewarmness is a church-wide spiritual disease. How could this happen to the whole lot? And not just a person here and there on the fringes. In a couple of the other letters, maybe you'll remember this in Revelation 2 and 3, when Christ speaks strong words of rebuke, uh, like in Thyatira and Sardis, He also very clearly calls out a faithful remnant in those churches who are exempt from his strong condemnation, but not here in Laodicea. It seems the leaven of lukewarmness has leavened the whole lump, and complacency and lack of zeal has 
infected the church. So you should be very careful in your self-examination that you do not just compare yourself to professing Christians around you who may themselves be lukewarm and then conclude that your lukewarm state is okay since it's in keeping with all those around you. Don't let someone else's lukewarmness be a false comfort to you about your own. Also, be the kind of person for the glory of Jesus in the church. Be the kind of person who is an antibiotic against lukewarmness in this church. Be zealous for your own soul's sake, but but also for the good of your brother and sister in Christ. Your personal zeal, your personal love for Christ, your personal living for Him and, and seeking to abound in good works and witness for Him. This can be a great antidote that helps ward off a creeping church-wide lukewarmness. And thus it helps to preserve the church as a faithful gospel witness for years to come. God can use you in that way. We've seen the problem of lukewarmness described. Now let's look at the cause of lukewarmness expounded. The cause of lukewarmness. Look at verse 17 with me. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The cause of lukewarmness is self-sufficiency. Being self-reliant and self-satisfied. Laodicea was a very affluent city. It sat at an important commercial crossroads. It brought great wealth to the metropolis. They didn't have good water, but they had a lot of wealth. Um, It became well-known as an important center for banking in the region. Cicero himself chose chose to bank there. Additionally, the city was well-known and wealthy for a fine black wool that it produced and, and sold. Also, it had an esteemed medical center, and the city was renowned for a a product that it put together and sold to help people with eye problems. So here is a church in the midst of much affluence, and the hearts of the church members in Laodicea were going after this wealth and trusting in it, in a way. Isn't that what Jesus tells us? He said, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, but Jesus knows that's not true. So among other things, Jesus tells them in the second half of the verse, you are poor. That's a really striking uh, juxtaposition. You say, I am rich, you don't realize you're poor. This is the exact opposite of the way Christ spoke to the church in Smyrna. In chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, it's easy for the materially wealthy, which is basically all of us in here, it's easy for the materially wealthy to start to forget or never come to realize in the first place how desperately we need Jesus. We can begin to feel pretty comfortable and at ease and satisfied with ourselves and our prosperity, and we can become blind to our spiritual poverty that makes us need Christ and need to continue clinging closely to Him. So the city's economic prosperity has made this church forget that apart from Christ, they can do nothing. You say, I have no need. Christ says, you can do nothing. Having all their physical needs met, and and met rather easily, I presume, made them forget 
owe to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. And so they became lukewarm. The church members in Laodicea made the error of thinking that everything was okay spiritually just because everything was okay materially. And we can be too quick to interpret economic prosperity and material prosperity as a sign of God's blessing, a sign that things are going well for us spiritually. Even whole churches often dangerously misinterpret economic prosperity as a sure sign of spiritual health and vitality. God's blessing us. We're making the budget comfortably. Maybe? The first way that Jesus characterized this church in Laodicea, which they weren't realizing about themselves, is that they are wretched. Now, there's a word that can rouse you out of your lukewarmness. If the Spirit gives you ears to hear it as a word that fits the bill for you, you are wretched. Have you ever sung the first verse of Amazing Grace and meant it? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and like you. Do you truly understand the horror of your personal sin against God? Next, Jesus describes them as pitiable. That is, worthy of pity. In a situation to be pitied, pitiful, miserable. Perhaps the Laodicean church would be tempted to say something like, why would anyone need to have pity on me? I'm rich. I've become rich. I have need of nothing. Don't pity me. Save your pity for the poor man. Save your pity for the disabled and the infirmed and the poorly clothed man. Jesus says, you are that man. Those are the next three descriptions for them, impoverished and blind and naked. I mean, can you imagine how desperately in need a poor, naked, blind person is? Doesn't it it move you in compassion just to imagine someone in that state? Well, that's pity you're feeling. Because that person is in a pitiable state. And Jesus tells the church, you are in desperate need of someone to take pity on you and to have compassion on you and to show mercy to you. You are poor and blind and naked. And these three descriptions of peril are almost certainly intended by Jesus to line up one by one with the well-known sources of wealth in the city. To those known for their banking, Christ says, you're poor. To those known for their textile industry, that fine wool, Christ says you're naked. To those known for their medical care, especially for treating eye disease, Christ says you are blind. The sources of your perceived self-sufficiency are actually not helping you in your wretched, pitiable state. If you are spiritually lukewarm, it is because you are asleep to how much you need Jesus And what he offers, if you are lukewarm, it is likely because you are operating as one self-sufficient and self-reliant and self-satisfied. And so you don't even have the urge to look outside of yourself and your own resources to come to Jesus for the desperate help that you need. It is truly blinding, like Jesus affirms, which is why lukewarmness can be such a deadly spiritual disease The lukewarm person may think, I'm doing really quite okay, because the lukewarm person may not have a life full of flagrant, overt, heinous sin. The lukewarm person might be a very nice person, an upstanding citizen who doesn't use profanity or commit sexual immorality or engage in drunkenness, etc., etc. And on top of that uh, respectable life, he might attend church regularly, You can do all of these things and still be lukewarm, can't you? Can't you be a really nice guy 
and still obviously lack observable zeal and love for Christ, the spiritually complacent person might seem like a very moral person. Unless you remember that the very foundation of morality is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. The lukewarm person can easily become blind to their desperate spiritual state because lukewarmness is, by and large, a collection of sins of omission. And so it can be easy for the lukewarm to end up blind to the fact that Christ thinks the way he is living is repulsive. And the lukewarm feel often just pretty lukewarm, even about their lukewarmness. In the next part of the letter, Christ presents to the church the solution to lukewarmness. Look at verse 18 and 19. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. The cause of lukewarmness was self-sufficiency, and the solution to lukewarmness is repentance. Jesus tells the church, I love you, now repent. Verse 19 is an important verse because it shows that Christ's motivation for these severe words is he loves them. These words are meant to be reproof for his people to motivate their repentance. These, these words are discipline, like child training to point his people back to him and to the abundant life that he offers. So again, at, at least some, if not the majority, of the people in this church are, are true children of God. And these Christians are in a, a bad spot, as we can get. And so Jesus loves them and does something about it. Maybe he's doing that for you this morning. In Hebrews 12, 6, it says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So when the Lord disciplines and, repu- and reproves you, he's treating you like a son for your good, so that you can share in his holiness. Dear Christian, are Christ's words about lukewarmness cutting for you? Are they, are they painful for you to hear? Let me interpret that experience for you. Christ is loving you when he says these things to you and gives you ears to hear them. Don't be discouraged by this discipline. Don't become weary and crushed and lose heart. Be strengthened by this. Repent by his grace. Neither should you regard lightly this discipline from the Lord. Be affected by this. Repent by his grace. These words of tough love are what the lukewarm need to see their need to repent. It is loving for Christ to call the lukewarm to repent, not only because lukewarmness is is odious to Christ, but it's also, as, as we've discussed, incredibly damaging and dangerous to the lukewarm, a spiritual deadness that leaves you in a pitiable state without the wherewithal and motivation to to look to Christ and call to mercy and receive the solution he offers. Right? The lukewarm do not walk in the power of the Spirit. They do not lay up treasure in heaven. They do not abide in Christ such that they bear much fruit and, and so prove to be his disciples. It is loving for Christ to call the lukewarm to repent. Also because when he calls them to turn from lukewarmness, he calls them to turn to something That is so good, as we will see. Now, the first step in repentance would be for the Laodiceans to come to realize what Christ said, that they were not realizing that they were 
wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Getting a sight of one's own sin is always the first step of repentance. If you will truly repent of anything, you first need your eyes open to see your spiritual wretchedness and pitiable state so you can change your mind about it. And the cry of the repentant heart says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? In James chapter 4, repentance is called for with a command, Be wretched! Uh, Meaning, see how miserable your sin is and, and feel miserably about it. Be wretched and mourn and weep. It's the command to repent. So you must see your sin clearly, and the reason that it hurts is to see your sin clearly is in keeping with how Christ sees it. And Christ has already told us how he sees the sin of lukewarmness. And so if you see that, it makes you grieve over your sin and hate it so that you desire to turn from it, so that you'll turn to Christ for the remedy. And again and again and again you must do this as just the baseline of what the Christian life is. And as you do that, you will find yourself relying on Christ and not yourself. And you'll find yourself satisfied in Christ and not without Him. And you'll find yourself zealous and not lukewarm. So are you lukewarm today? Be wretched. Mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. God will accept the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. Confess your Christless self-satisfaction and your self-sufficiency to God. And tell Him with a broken heart that it disgusts you like it must Him. And tell Him you earnestly desire zeal and love for Him because He's worthy of it. This is the first step of repentance, to embrace your wretched and pitiable state before God apart from Christ to confess and agree with Christ on what he says concerning your sin. And then the second step of repentance is to embrace Christ's gracious provision for our sin and for our wretchedness. So after you see that you are pitiable, you must take that next step and see how Christ has taken great pity on you. Look at verse 18 again. Christ says, I, I counsel you. I'm telling you, this is what you need to do. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. So Christ told them, you are poor as a setup to tell them, I have pure refined gold for you so that you can become truly rich. And he tells them you are naked as a setup to tell them, I have white garments for you, so that you may be truly clothed and unashamed and protected. And he says you are blind in order to say, I have a salve for you, to anoint your eyes that will make you truly see what Christ offers sinners perfectly fits their need. It's a perfect fit. It's a perfect solution. An all-sufficient solution. An all-satisfying solution. A perfect provision. Jesus tells the church, I have some advice for you. You should come to me and purchase these things. Catch that? You need to buy this gold from me and buy these garments from me and buy this salve from me. Now, this counsel to buy or, or purchase this gold and garment and, and salve is a continuation of a theme introduced earlier, right? The, the imagery of the Laodiceans' insistence about how rich and need-free they are. You say you're rich? Okay, buy these things. Uh, you're used to people bringing their money to you for your banking. You need to buy gold from me. You're used to people bringing money To you, for your fine black wool, you need to buy white garments from me. You're used to people coming to you to buy medical care for their eye problems. You need to buy a salve for the eyes from me. 
You shouldn't rely on yourself, and you shouldn't think other people rely on you either. You need to rely on me. In actuality, of course, Jesus knows they're poor when it, when it comes to the currency that actually counts before him. They can't actually buy these things in the sense that they have anything truly worthy to offer him in exchange for this gold and these garments and this salve. I mean, how could a poor, naked, blind man buy pure gold? He can't even buy clothes for himself. But by giving them counsel to buy these things, I think Jesus is is trying to goad them into humble admission that their riches cannot buy them what they need most and what is most valuable. You think all your needs are met by your wealth, but what you need most is something you cannot buy for yourself. Your only hope is what Jesus has to offer, and your only hope is if Jesus decides to just give it to you for free, to buy it from him without payment. Which makes us think of Isaiah 55.1, where the Lord tells his people, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And actually, that verse from Isaiah 55 is echoed several times in the book of Revelation. And the whole book of Revelation was addressed to the seven churches, not just chapters 2 and 3 that speak to them directly. So the church in Laodicea should have kept reading Revelation, uh, assuming they weren't too lukewarm to continue doing so. And if they did, they would have heard promises like this. In Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Revelation 21.6, he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, to anyone who sees their need for this and wants this water, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So Jesus tells them, I, I counsel you to buy from me what you need most. It's something you can never afford, but it's, it's something I give to all who desire it because they see their need for it and thirst for it and ask for it and come to me for it. And those who have no money come and buy without price this gold, these garments, this salve. The gold Christ offers sinners is, is pure, This verse says, like refined by a fire. It's the kind of treasure that will never be taken away. It compounds interest for eternity. It's an inheritance that is unfading and imperishable and and kept in heaven, which, which is an impregnable and secure bank. And knowing Christ, belonging to him, is better than any earthly treasure of any quantity or quality. And the reward that Christ gives lasts into the new creation because he is personally the beginning of it. And the white garments that Christ offers covers the shame of nakedness, verse 18 said. So our sin and guilt before God is shameful. Our lukewarmness toward Christ, our Savior, is is shameful. And the garments Christ gives covers our sin, even the sin of lukewarmness so that it will not be seen on the last day. None who trusts in him will will ever be put to shame. He takes away our sin and clothes us in his white righteousness. And then he works to conform us to his image, makes us righteous and pure like he is, makes us zealous and love like he is and does. And the salve Christ offers makes us see clearly, to see our sin for what it is, so that we want to keep turning from it. To, to see lukewarmness toward Christ is truly sickening, like Christ does. You know, if, if you are severely lukewarm, and you hear this, and you think, oh, I really should be bothered by my spiritual state, but I just can't help but feeling kind of meh about it. Christ has a salve that will open your eyes. Come to him without price. Ask him, God, help me. Help me see. 
And this salve also gives you eyes to see Him for who He is, an all-sufficient Savior. Even for the most flat-line lukewarm among us who will repent and come to Him. So when you see you're a wretch and, and then come to Him for this grace and provision which is greater than all your wretchedness and given because He loves you, then you know again His grace is amazing that it saves a wretch like me. And, and the sound of it will be sweet to you and your lukewarmness should start to dissolve. And then do it again tomorrow. And then do it again the next day. If you're one who repents of sin and believes on Christ for these gifts, then these gifts are yours. Each time we come to God with a broken and contrite heart over our sin, we need to be sure to end all of our repentances by trusting in this provision from Christ. And in this way, we have the the joy of salvation restored and then even augmented as we walk in ongoing faith and repentance. So if you want to put a halt to your drift toward lukewarmness and reverse that trend, you need first of all to, to refocus and zoom in on how much you need Jesus each day. Remember that apart from him you can do nothing so that you will abide in him, self-consciously rely on, on him so that you will bear much fruit. Now, the last part of Christ's solution, which he offers the lukewarm church, is is at the end of verse 19, where he says, Be zealous. And and it's it's paired with the command to repent. Now, perhaps the zeal commanded is meant to qualify the the repent command, as if to say, repent zealously. When you approach Christ in, in repentance, repenting of lukewarmness and other sins, don't be lukewarm about that. Uh, Seek to repent in a wholehearted way. And being zealous is also the fruit that that should come from repenting of lukewarmness. We're commanded to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the fruit that is in keeping with repentance from lukewarmness looks like zeal. So pursue this earnestness and wholeheartedness and fervency in spirit. Pursue a, a spiritual violence against complacency in your heart and a vigor that overcomes the world. In verse 20, Christ speaks to the church of Laodicea the promise for those who repent of lukewarmness. The promise. Look at verse 20 and 21. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So, so here's a reversal of sorts of the imagery of eating and drinking we found in the opening of the letter. The judgment for lukewarmness was described as Christ drinking something so nasty it causes him to, to spew it out. But here the reward promised for repentance is described as Christ sitting down to enjoy a meal with us. Christ stands and, and knocks. He calls. That's what he's doing through these stern, loving, disciplinary words. He's knocking and standing ready to come in and dine. And if anyone in the church of Laodicea would hear his voice, hear this call to to repent, and then open the door by repenting and embracing Christ's provision afresh, then the end of that repentant heart will be sweet fellowship with the Savior Isn't this further proof that Christ's rebuke in in this passage is motivated by love? I'm warning you strongly because I love you. I desire to come in and eat with you. The tender affection of this promised fellowship is is striking. You know, Christ doesn't merely say, I stand and knock. If anyone comes, if anyone opens, I'll come in. It's more personal than that. He says, I will come in. To him, and, and symbolizing a deep fellowship, says, I will eat with him. And then the sense of true fellowship in this promise is, is deepened because Christ adds the reciprocal phrase, and he with me. 
The great reward of repenting of lukewarmness is, is this personal, loving fellowship with Jesus. Ha- having, uh, as it were, intimate table fellowship with the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus, the Lord. And then this loving communion with Christ doubles back to reinvigorate our, our zeal and making us want to live for him in, in the world and seek to fellowship with him even more and, and motivates even further repentance of lukewarmness. And this is the Christian life. Now Christ offers another promise for those who repent in verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is probably the highest promise of all of the letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And isn't it a wonder that this highest promise of all of Christ's words to the churches is spoken to the church who received the most severe rebuke? Christ knows what we need. To sit with Christ on his throne. Amazing. Obviously, this is symbolic. The the people that Christ will save is a multitude no one can count. How's how's that going to work on a throne? But this is an amazing promise to sit with him on his throne. This is the ultimate rags to riches story, isn't it? Uh, The pitiable, poor, naked, blind guy ends up sitting down with the ruler of the universe on his throne. The wretched, miserable person becomes one supremely blessed as he overcomes the world and and conquers by faith in in union with Christ. And that's who the one who conquers is, which is who this promise was made to in this verse. The one who conquers or overcomes is the Christian who who trusts in Christ's words as the amen and and repents accordingly and, and then proves to be his disciple by abiding in him which just means relying on him and continuing to trust and follow him and continuing to walk in repentance. Not perfectly, actually. The overcoming Christian walks the path Christ himself has walked. He said, I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. So sitting with Christ on his throne represents participation in his rule. We have seen other promises in Revelation 2 and 3 reference the same reality. It's like when God created Adam and Eve in his image and then said, have dominion over everything, reign, rule. It's like that except transposed into a much higher key. Christ's people will reign with him in, in his kingdom. And eventually they will reign with him as they fellowship with him forever and ever in the new creation that he has already begun. These are true riches and they're freely given to all who repent and believe on Christ for his saving grace. Finally, Jesus concludes the letter in verse 22, just like all the others in Revelation 2 and 3. This conclusion shows these words are not only Christ's address to the lukewarm church, but these are also the Spirit's words to all the churches, including ours today. Look at verse 22 with me in closing. Where Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So have you heard what the Spirit says today to the churches? So how will you respond? Let's pray. God, thank you for taking pity on us. Uh, We don't deserve what you give us. We don't deserve how you lovingly discipline us. That you would call us back from lukewarmness like this and and not spew us out of your mouth, but rather invite us to repent and dine with you. God, would you give us grace to do that? 
we, we really do want to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus. So I pray that you would, you would give us grace. We believe that your provision is enough for us to be forgiven for all our lukewarmness and enough to, to actually help us live in a way that, that pleases him because of what he's done for us and the spirit he gives. So help us to respond in faith now and in repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.